What's up, guys? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Listen to Me Speak. We are on season two, episode 29. And in a lot of ways, I feel like we're just flying by the season. But I feel like each episode keeps getting better and better. And I hope you guys are enjoying it. A big thank you to everyone who's been sharing my podcast on their social medias, listening to the podcast, telling their friends about it. I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to be honest and say I feel like there wasn't a whole lot to talk about this week and there were just honestly things I didn't have time to get into and unfortunately like I didn't get to watch Suicide Squad 2 yet. I was on the fence about watching um, the movie anyway because the trailer honestly did not look good but when I found out that they were doing an HBO Max release for it as well I was like eh I'll give it a shot so I really want to review that movie on this podcast for you guys but I just did not have the time to watch this week there are albums that I'm behind on so hopefully by next week's episode I can get all that stuff done in that episode and you know hopefully you guys are still interested in what I have to say for this episode there are a couple of interesting things that did happen this week so I'm excited to get into that so without further ado let's get into this episode so finally after I want to say almost two months I watched the final two episodes of Rebel, and let me tell you, after watching those two episodes, I'm even more frustrated that we won't be getting a second season because I feel like this show had such potential. You know, I had a slow build-up, but I feel like, you know, when a show is new in its first season, you really have to give it time to grow, and within like the first three or four episodes, the show really started to pick up. I really became invested in the lawsuit between and and I can't even remember what the company's name was but essentially Rebel the main character was fighting for the people who had this heart transplant and I guess the hearts were no good and they were causing death and other like various diseases and, and ailments among the people who had gotten the procedure done so she was fighting for them to kind of get the heart off the market and fighting for them to pay to have the people get those damaged hearts removed because obviously surgeries cost money. So the whole first season was centered around that. And obviously I don't need to put a spoiler alert because at this point, those of you who watch the show have probably already long since watched the finale, but it ends at least not on a real cliffhanger. Like you do get a resolution by the end of the season. We know that um, the heart company loses the case, you know, everything worked out in their favor. Really, by the end of season one, you can tell that if they had gotten a season two, that they were going to start, they were going to center that season on a new case because Cassidy, Rebel, one of Rebel's daughters, comes to her by the end of the episode and says, hey, you know, I found this case, it kind of fell into my lap, I think that you should put your energy into this next because the show is based off of, I believe her name is Erin Brockovich, Her Real Life. And so obviously that's what she does for a living. That's what Rebel does for a living. So she throws herself into these cases and tries her best to to win them and fight for the people who aren't typically being fought for. So I believe that the show, had it continued, each season was going to center on a big uh, lawsuit that Rebel was trying to fight. But despite my disappointment, you know, about Rebel being canceled, I am glad that season one ended with resolution for all of the characters. Rebel got to win the case that she had been putting all of her energy to her kids kind of got their happy endings with her youngest daughter because I'm blinking on the names at the moment her youngest daughter was able to kind of be at peace about I guess her relationship with both of her parents because she is a drug addict so they had kind of a complicated relationship especially the one that she had with her father so I was happy that they were kind of in a better place with that I'm sure if we got a season two that would have been a continued work in progress um for Cassidy she kind of accepted that she tries her hardest to kind of please both parents in a sense and that she's trying too hard to I guess get from under their shadow because it seems like she on one hand she wanted to be exactly like her father and nothing like her mother and then she kind of has that dose of reality where her brother is like you know as much as you hate both of them at times you are a lethal mix of the both of them so I feel like by the end of season one you see Cassie try to figure out who she wants to be rather than trying to be like either one of her parents and for the son for rebel son you see him finally start to work through his intimacy issues and kind of 
take a leap of faith and be in a committed relationship with the woman that he's fallen in love with. So there were a lot of, there was a lot of character growth even in just one season. And so again, it's just, if they had gotten a season two, I really feel like the show would have picked up even more and more people probably would have found its way to the show. I did look online to kind of see where the Save Rebel campaign was going and they are making some leeway. A lot of people are signing the petition to bring it back. So depending on how the ratings are going for on Hulu, because the show is on Hulu if you want to watch it, depending on how the show streams there, Hulu may be willing to pick up the show. Hulu does um, have a lot of ABC content on its streaming service. So I'm hoping that because, you know, the showrunner of the show, her name is Krista Vernoff. She is a big name in the TV industry. And to be honest, I was quite shocked that ABC was willing to, you know, cut the cord on her show. Um, but I guess it, it proves that it doesn't matter who you are. Your shows are capable of being canceled. But because Krista is a big name, I'm hoping that maybe Hulu will consider picking up the show because it, it really is worth seeing it through to another season. So hopefully the Save Rebel campaign um, picks up even more steam and they're able to save the show because I think it definitely deserves it. Moving on from Rebel, the first teaser for American Crime Story Impeachment was released last week. And based off of the topic alone, I was already interested in watching the show. So for those of you who may not know what this season is going to be about, impeachment um, tells or retells the story or dramatizes the story of what happened between Bill Clinton, President Bill Clinton, and Monica Lewinsky. And so American Crime Story is run by the same people who did Glee, who did Pose, and who do American Crime Story, aka Ryan Murphy. And so they've done seasons based off of the O.J. Simpson um, trial. They did one on the Gianni, 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 sorry, Gianni Versace murder. They did a season on that, and I think that was the last season they did. And then they had planned to do impeachment. And I think impeachment was supposed to come out a, a while ago, but then they delayed it, and the Gianni Versace um, season came out beforehand. And so ever since news broke that they were doing this, I was like, well, this is going to be interesting because I really enjoyed the other two seasons of this show. I think they tackle these kind of topics really well. So I was interested to see how this unfolds because obviously in history class, I learned a little bit about what happened. Obviously they didn't go into great detail, so I don't know everything. And I also, I don't think I was alive when this happened. I believe this may have occurred in 1996. So I wasn't alive quite yet. So it'll be interesting to watch the show to actually see what unfolds. I assume that Monica Lewinsky, because she's kind of touchy when it comes to things like this. I, I can't really blame her, but she, she is touchy when it comes to stuff like that. Whenever her name is mentioned or people poke fun at the situation, obviously it hurts her feelings. So I'm not sure if she's um, against um, them doing impeachment. I haven't heard her make any negative comments or really speak on the show so she may be okay with it maybe they even talked to her and had her involved in some way who knows the teaser doesn't really show you much but all I know is that I definitely will be locked in because I think this will be extremely interesting I think the show is set to come out next month so stay tuned because I definitely will be talking about the first episode Speaking of the crew behind American Crime Story, I have to get a little bit into American Horror Stories, which is a little spinoff of American Horror Story that's exclusively on Hulu. And while I was satisfied with the first two episodes of the show, it's starting to slip. I'm behind on, I don't think I've seen episode five yet. I'm behind on that, which actually episode five features one of the actors from 911 Lone Star in it, which is not a shock because Ryan Murphy tends to work with, you know, the same people. That's why usually if you get in good with him on one show, he'll probably recast you in, in his many other shows that he's running. Anyway, episodes three and four, especially episode four, were horrible. So episode four was actually featured another um, Ryan Murphy veteran, I guess you could say, from Glee, Kevin McHale, which I was excited when I heard that he was going to be a part of American Horror Stories because I'm like, there are so many talented people from Glee or, you know, that he's worked with in the past that he hasn't worked with again. And I was like, I always wondered why nobody from Glee popped up in American Horror Story or popped up in another show that he was doing because a lot of them were really talented. He really only worked with Leah Michelle and Darren Chris again. 
So when I saw that Kevin McHale was going to be in an episode of the show, I'm like, oh, great. Like, this is great. And I was really disappointed because the episode was literally crack. Like, so for those of you who don't know, when you refer to like a show or like a moment of a show as crack, it's pretty much this really campy, it's really campy humor, like things that are just so, I don't even know how to really explain it, but it's kind of like when a show does something that's so completely ridiculous that you just call it crack because it's like this, how, how was, how was, how did the writers come up with something that's so ridiculous and crazy and makes no sense? But sometimes it works. Like when you go back and you watch shows like Victorious, a lot of that show really is crack. It's a bunch of campy humor that you're like, this shouldn't work, but it does. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. For Victorious, I think it worked in its favor. But for this episode of American Horror Story, it did not. It was bad writing, a bad storyline. The acting was very underwhelming. It was very bad acting and Kevin McHale's not a bad actor but you can only do so much with the script and script and a storyline that you're thrown so pretty much that episode episode four focuses around these influencers in a hype house that um put out this really controversial YouTube video and then they start to lose all these subscribers so they start to spiral and they do all these crazy videos and it ends up with them in a mall on Christmas telling a whole bunch of children that Santa's not real. Lo and behold, the guy playing Santa for the day actually is a murderer. And what he does around Christmas time every year is kill a bunch of people that he feels are horrible and do horrible things and and aren't in the spirit of Christmas. So instead of giving them coal, he kills them. And so that's essentially what he ends up doing to these influencers because they're really not the greatest guys. And he ends up killing them. But the episode, I understand it, it's probably a parody and a playoff of people like um, Jake Paul and Logan Paul and those really dumbass YouTube influencers that post really horrible videos like Logan Paul. I think he was the one that posted that video in the suicide forest with, you know, he, I think he captured like a, a dead body on film. It was just really distasteful. And so that's a lot of what happens in this episode of American Horror Stories. And I get where they were trying to go with it, but it just wasn't executed well at all. I And really the horror aspect of the episode doesn't even kick in until half of the episode. So you're stuck watching 30 minutes of these idiot men running around doing stupid shit for views before the horror really kicks in. So it was my hope that this little spinoff of American Horror Story was going to kind of give the writers some ideas for future seasons for the regular American Horror Story. Like if an episode was really successful enough, you know, and popular amongst fans, they could base a whole season off of it. And I just feel like the writers are in a rut, like they've run out of ideas. And maybe that's a sign that, hey, maybe we should wrap up American Horror Story and move on to something new because, you know, the 911 shows are doing really well. The ideas are fresh. The storylines are still engaging. And, you know, so far, American Crime Story seems to be in the same boat of 911 where the stories are still really fresh and really new. So I think American Horror Story has run its course and, and they've done all they can do storyline-wise. And, you know, you would think, oh, this is an anthology show where each season has a different storyline and a different character, so it should be easier. But I feel like they've outdone themselves and, and they've just, they can't top some of their best seasons. So at this point, it's just... Let's just call it quits. And I think that now I'm on season five of the irregular American Horror Story um, Hotel. And I don't know, I feel like in the later seasons, a lot of the writers have just gone overboard and done too much with, you know, the violence and the, the trauma and things like that that they address on their shows. I feel like they're overdoing it. Like there was this really brutal sexual assault scene in the very first episode of the fifth season. And it kind of like turned me off to watching the season and a friend of mine told me that hotel was just really excessive and that there were moments I guess later as American Horror Story progressed that was just excessive for no reason there's nothing wrong with depicting violence but when I feel like it has no point in the storyline it's just you're just doing it just to do it or to cause shock value and it doesn't progress the storyline any further it's not needed and I feel like American Horror Story kind of got that way but I'm only in season five I've been really slow with hotel most likely because I was turned off by that opening scene in the first episode. It is the season that Lady Gaga is in, and I heard a lot of people, you know, were excited about her being in the show. I don't really remember a lot of people's comments about her portrayal or her character in the show, but I feel like Lady Gaga was probably a good addition for the series because, number one, she's a good actress and she's into all of that. And two, Lady Gaga's 
early part of her career was very cinematic, very um, based off of shock value. So I feel like that's probably the perfect type of show for her to be in. So eventually I'll pick it back up because I'm watching a million shows at the moment. So eventually I'll make my way back to season five and see how I feel by the end of it. But either way, I just had to throw in my two cents about American Horror Stories because I was really hoping it was going to give the writers like a refresher of sorts and it's kind of starting to, to dwindle. We'll see how I feel about episode five whenever I make my way to it. So moving on from TV, you know I had to get into the, my music bag. And so I'm going to start off by talking about Black Round Records announcing a relaunch and they're releasing Aaliyah's entire discography on streaming services for the first time ever. And as excited as I am for this, because I love Aaliyah, I've been really, really desperately wanting them to finally release her discography on streaming services so that, you know, her legacy doesn't die out and there aren't generations going by who never heard of her. You know, this is a really big moment, but at the same time, it's bittersweet because, you know, these black round artists aren't going to make money off of black round releasing their their discography on streaming services. I mean, Aaliyah's estate already came out and kind of denounced this move saying, you know, they have they had been pushing to get her catalog on streaming services for years and have always had pushback and now it's happening and her estate probably won't make any money off of it, which means if Aaliyah was still alive today, she wouldn't be making any money off of it. They're also releasing old albums from JoJo, Tank, and Timbaland as well. You know, the albums that they made on Black Round at the time. They're releasing that on streaming services finally as well. And, you know, JoJo already admitted that she won't be making a single cent off of the original recordings. And if you remember in 2018, she re-recorded her first two albums for that reason alone because we could not listen to songs like Too Little Too Late or Leave Get Out. Some of her biggest hit records we couldn't find on streaming and she wasn't making any money off of. And I'm pretty sure it's frustrating for artists like her who, you know, they write their own music and I know she didn't write the earlier songs because she was like 13 at the time. Like it's rare when when artists that young are writing their own music. But it you know later on in her career when she was writing music and she's not making a single song off of words that she's writing. That's got to be frustrating. So when I saw that they were re-releasing her albums as well, the first thing I thought of well was well is JoJo even making money off of this? You know I don't want to stream it if she's not making money and and I knew in the back of my mind that she wasn't going to make money because first of all she had to fight tooth and nail to get out of that contract number one and number two she had to re-record her albums in the first place because Black Round wasn't re-releasing them on streaming services so I kind of already knew the answer to that question but she confirmed it on Twitter I could tell she was extremely upset by the announcement that was probably when we got the announcement she probably got the announcement at the same time I'm pretty sure she was extremely upset and she admitted you know I can't tell y'all what to do but just so you know streaming the original recordings is not making me any money and she's not the first artist to come out and say that you know I think an art artist like Anita Baker that my dad and I just talked about this she's come out and said hey don't stream my music because I'm not making money off of it I think De La Soul had said the same thing and they just recently um, I think an article came out a couple of days ago saying that they're going to start making money off of those you know, recordings now. But I kind of think it's a slap in the face where Blackground have put their artists through all this hell. And Toni Braxton as well, she had one album on the label that unless you bought the physical CD, you, you couldn't find anywhere. You know, a lot of them went through a hard time on that label. So now it's a slap in the face for them to kind of make this resurgence and put all of that music on there and not pay their artists a single cent, but it's it's not a surprise. So while I am excited to have Aaliyah's full discography and I will be streaming because, hey, I, I can't find this music anywhere else except for YouTube, it is kind of bittersweet because I know her estate really isn't making any money off of it. I hope that Aaliyah's estate, Tank, JoJo, and all of the other artists that have music on Black Round Records sue and get what they're worth now that Black Round is um, making a comeback. I think they're under, they're being distributed by Epic, which I already have my own thoughts and feelings about that label in itself. But I do hope they get what's due because they do deserve to be making money off of music that they wrote and that they sang on, you know. Whether they wrote it or not, this is their music and they deserve a piece of the pie. So I really do hope that they lawyer up and they get what they deserve. Moving on from Black Round Records, last week marked the 10-year anniversary of Chris Brown's Boy in Detention mixtape. It's not his best mixtape, but it has some good tracks on it. 
Some of my favorite songs from it are Body on Mine, Sweetheart, Your Body, and Strip, which eventually appeared on his Fortune album. Honestly, I think Chris has the best R&B mixtapes in the game, and they're truly what helped him bring him back to the, the mainstream, really. A lot of the songs from In My Zone, Boy in Detention, In My Zone 2 ended up being on actual albums because fans loved them so much. And it was in that time, you know, his mixtape days from Fame and Fortune where him and Kevin McCall were really working together. They had really amazing chemistry and they were just turning, you know, hit after hit. And the music was so undeniable that it forced people to kind of look back at Chris Brown and go, hey, you know, this guy's back. He's making music and, you know, he fucked up. He did a horrible thing and you know, there's no excusing it, but it was, this music was able, I guess, to convince some listeners to kind of focus on the music and on, not on a lot of the stupid shit that he was doing. And so I think that's why for so long he was continuing to make the mixtapes because, hey, some of those mixtapes were better than some of the albums he put out. Like the mixtape he put out, I think it was called Before the Party, was a much better album than Royalty and they came out, I think, a month apart. And so I think that it allowed him to kind of control the music that he wanted to make. It allowed him to experiment and it ended up working out in his favor because the mixtapes were so popular that the label was like, all right, we're ready to get behind you again and put out another album. Because Fame and Fortune was originally supposed to be a double album, but because Fame was his first album after Graffiti that was blackballed and did horribly, they were like, well, let's start off with one. And if it's successful, then you can put out the other one. So I really want to say he put out Fame and Fortune a year apart. But if um, you listen to the albums back to back, you'll hear that they originally were supposed to go together, Fame and Fortune. Honestly, I can't believe that it's been 10 years for this mixtape. So I can only imagine how long it's been for In My Zone. That might be 12, 13 years. But I remember when Boy Detention came out almost like it was yesterday. And that was really... Um, with Chris Brown and Drake, and that was really when I started getting into mixtapes and downloading them, and, and I remember thinking back then, like, you know, why aren't these mixtapes, you know, albums? Because they're good enough, and fast forward today, now mixtapes are albums. They're sold and marketed like albums. And so I know, I think it was last year, Chris Brown said that he was working on putting his mixtapes out on streaming services, which could be great for him because now he's got his own label. He owns his masters and stuff. So him putting his mixtapes on streaming would probably make him a whole bunch of money. He's got, I want to say off the top of my head, maybe five or six mixtapes um, within my zone being the most popular one. So if he puts his mixtapes on streaming, I already know his numbers are going to go up. He's probably going to make a whole lot of money from them and they're going to go directly in his pocket because I don't think RCA had anything to do with any of those mixtapes. He made them on his own time. But revisiting a lot of those mixtapes, Boy in Detention, In My Zone, um, it really does make me miss the team that he had with Seven Streeter and Kevin McCall. And it's too bad that him and Kevin McCall had fell out and that Kevin McCall has lost his mind and, and has spiraled. I don't even think he has it in him to, to write a decent record these days, but they really were a good team and it's a shame that they fell out and you can really hear the difference and the change in his music ever since him and Kevin McCall stopped working together. I really want to say his last great album was X, even though Kevin McCall wasn't a part of that, X really was still a great album. But if you listen to Fame and Fortune and you compare it to Indigo and heartbreak on a full moon there is a stark difference in the music i already know his next album which he's calling breezy and it's also his 10th album so that's a major deal he already admitted that that was going to be a long album as well it was going to be a double album i really do hope after breezy we get back to normal standard albums from him i'm talking 13 to 15 tracks and i really do want to hear him go back to r&b music i mean traditional r&b music I would love to hear that. I would think on on the 10th album, that's really what I wanted. I'd really want him to go back to his roots, especially naming the, the album self-titled. I'd really want him to go back to his roots. But since that seems to not be the case, I do hope that after Breezy, we get back to, you know, the traditional R&B music. I just want a full R&B album from him. And I only want 13 to 15 tracks because listening to 40 plus track albums are just tiring, honestly. So Lizzo announced that her new song, Rumors, which is dropping this Friday, features Cardi B, 
And honestly, I can't wait for this track because Lizzo and Cardi B on a record, it looks good on paper and it just makes a whole lot of sense. They're both really animated and fun and great performers. So I can't imagine what this album, what, not this album, what this music video is going to look like because I already know it's going to be a great visual. I feel like the song is going to be really upbeat and lively and just a really fun track for the summer. So I can't wait to hear what comes out of this collab. I'm surprised it didn't happen sooner, but I am excited that it's happening now. So moving on from Lizzo, I debated on if I was even going to bring it up, but why not? Because it's so small. But apparently Drake's Certified Lover Boy cover art album leaked and not really his cover art. So what happened was I follow um, this Drake fan page that, you know, updates with news and stuff like that, just so I can keep up on the progress of his music and stuff like that. So they had posted a link with the picture and it's a picture of Drake. It's black and white. There's a girl hugging him. Um, she's not facing the camera, but he is. And so that was posted with the link to Drake's website. And everybody in the comments were saying, oh, you know, whatever he was selling sold out. Based on what I could gather from the comments, it was apparently liner notes. Now, I don't know if what he sold was like a vinyl or a CD that just wasn't ready yet because some artists will do that. They'll be like, you know, my album's around the corner. It's not pressed yet, but here's my website where you can order it. And then once the album is pressed, then you'll get the package. It's very dumb, but that's what they do. So I don't know if that's what he sold. Some people said they were liner notes from the album. So anyway, before this picture could really like gain traction with the media, I guess a fan posted it on Instagram and tagged Drake in it and he private he sent them a DM and asked them to take it down and that it wasn't the official cover art and that it was just a placeholder for the album, which again plays into what I think, which is that he's planning to sell vinyls and CDs, but they're not pressed yet. So here's a placeholder. Oh, here's a placeholder. I, I cannot speak today. Sorry. Here's a placeholder for the album until it, it comes out. And really looking at the picture, it makes sense because the stupid little heart in his his fade isn't there. And I would assume if you're if you're going out of your way to cut a heart into your hair for over a year, you're gonna make sure that you have it like that for your album cover because it's called Certified Lover Boy. Why do the heart in your hair if you're not gonna utilize it in photos? So I guess, you know, it makes sense that that's not the official album cover and that maybe it was like an idea because I'm pretty sure artists take a whole bunch of photo shoots and do a whole bunch of different themes to kind of figure out which direction they want the album cover to look like. I do think that even though it's been extremely frustrating the way that he's been teasing over the last couple of weeks, like today he posted a picture of him on FaceTime or video chat with what I think is 40. And it's very clear that they're mixing and mastering or whatever, which is weird to me because I thought Drake said that it was done, but maybe they're still in the mastering process because 40 is a wizard when it comes to that. He takes his time, understandable. And so in the picture in the corner, there's a notebook that has like certified lover boy doodles with the year 2021, which I guess is Drake's way of still trying to say, hey, I'm still dropping this year or, or whatever. So I do think the album really is around the corner. I'll be surprised if August comes and goes and there's nothing from Drake. And I think the fact that his website posted whatever it was that they posted is proof that it's on the way. But whenever it does drop in August, you can bet your ass that Kanye's down the album will drop as well. So moving on from Drake and his non-existent album, last week marked 20 years of Usher's 8701 album, and I can't believe it. I think, obviously I was very young when that album came out, I, I was probably around four years old when it came out, but I remember listening to that CD for the first time like it was yesterday. I've told so many of my like music friends this story that I'm pretty sure those of them who are listening are going to be like, here comes another story that we've heard a million times. I may have even told part of the story on here, but I'll tell it again anyway. So back in the day when CDs were still a thing, my mom used to have this huge collection of CDs. And I used to, at the time, at this point in time, in the year that 8701 came out, I didn't have my own CD player yet. So I would sit in the living room. We still lived in Brooklyn at the time. I'd sit in the living room. Like my, at the time we had this um, desktop computer and a like computer chair that you would sit in. So I'd sit in the computer chair, I'd root around my mom's CDs, and I'd just look for CDs that interested me. So she had 8701. And I 
already loved Usher. I loved his music. And so anytime I saw Usher on a CD cover or an album cover or whatever, I picked it up and wanted to listen to it. So she had 8701 and I listened to it and I remember absolutely loving this album, loving it. And it's crazy to me. It makes sense that it's 20 years old, obviously, because I was a child when I listened to the CD, but it blows my mind that it's already 20 years because in a lot of ways, it it feels like yesterday. It feels like yesterday that I fell in love with music and I fell in love with music through Usher. And R&B really is my first love. And it's albums like 8701 and it's albums like Confessions that really did it for me. And I really feel like shaped the 2000s music wise because R&B was sounding like one thing in the 90s. And then you get to the early 2000s, you get albums like B-Day and you get albums like 8701 and Confessions and even Janet Jackson's All For You album. Like you can tell that a lot of these albums were shaped by that sound. And I really feel like Usher and Jermaine Dupri are one of the best musical duos ever in the history of music. And they really created something special. And you can just hear the sound of R&B change after that. So 20 years of 8701, 20 years of this album really is a huge celebration for Usher and for Jermaine Dupri and, and whoever else was involved. I mean, you look at Usher now, he's a legacy act. He's got his... um residency in Vegas going on and so to celebrate 20 years it's just I'm waiting for Usher to really get his flowers because I know there are people out there that appreciate him as an artist but I don't think that Usher has really gotten his flowers yet he hasn't gotten a whole lot of tributes you know I don't hear a whole lot of people outside of my generation obviously talk about Usher as an influence the way that they should because he really is um so I feel like 20 years of an album is incredible in itself, but I do hope that, you know, this residency and, and all of these achievements are the start of Usher getting his flowers because I really do think that he deserves it. And I can't even really tell you my favorites from this album because there are so many. I, I really love this album top to bottom. And I know I always talk about confessions, but I feel like 8701 should get that love too because it really is incredible. So shout out to Usher. Congratulations on 20 years of 8701. Really, I. I'm in the mood to listen to that album again. I'm in the mood to watch his concert DVD. My mom has it. I kind of took it from her. I haven't I haven't um rewatched it yet. Like I'm I'm in an Usher and Beyonce mood to be honest lately. So I definitely have to run 8701 back. While we're talking about album anniversaries, I gotta talk about Nicki Minaj's Queen album because that hit three years today as of August 10th. And yes, it's not a 20 year anniversary like Usher. It's not a huge feat like that. It really does remind me that it's been a little minute since Nicki Minaj has put out an album. And it's funny because after she put out Queen, she was like, oh, the next album won't take as long to come out. But you know, things happen, life happened. She got married, she had a baby, you know, different things like that. So, you know, if someone has a baby, they're gonna take a significant break from whatever they're doing, whether they're making music or they're working a nine to five, they have an office job, whatever. So it makes sense that it's been a while. But Queen, to me, was such a, I think, a big chapter for Nikki in her career because now she was slowly transitioning into a legacy artist. And, and I think that it was a little bit of a struggle for her to do so because she had been running female rap for 10 years. So to go from that to now you have Cardi B, you have Megan Thee Stallion, and have a lot more um, female rappers popping up from a younger generation now ready to kind of take on the next 10 years. And I think, you know, every artist in, in Nikki's, you know, situation would feel that way you know I talked about Jay-Z and Kanye having that issue with Drake and stuff like that where you've been running things for a long time and now here comes a younger artist ready to surpass you and it's like an ego thing so I think Queen marks that space in Nicki Minaj's life and her career I mean the album is titled Queen for a reason I think she was trying to reaffirm that title for anybody else who may have doubted that she had the title in the first place and I think Queen to me, though it's not Nicki Minaj's best album, I wouldn't put it at number one or even number two, um, I think it's important because I think Queen, she was at her most lyrical, if that makes sense. She was, the lyrical skill on Queen, I think surpasses her past albums. I think The Pink Print is her best album, but I think lyrically Queen, she was just on another level. She had something to prove. So lyrically Queen is a great album and I think that's why I don't hate it as much as a lot of Nicki Minaj fans or a lot of critics do. And I think I saw a lot of even um, album reviews 
credit Nicki Minaj for her lyrical skill on that album. Like if you listen to it, you know, it speaks for itself. So I think Queen is important because it caused Nicki to kind of like push herself to a new level and to work harder because, okay, she's not just going to, you know, be the only one in the game now. Now she's got some competition and sometimes that competition puts a battery in your back. It gives you fuel. And it was nice to hear Nicki kind of prove that even though she had been gone for four years at that point, she still had it. Even though I'm not going to do a deep dive into like my favorite songs and like the album itself, it's only been three years. I'll probably save that for like a 10 year anniversary. Some of my favorite songs from that album off the top of my head are Nip Tuck, Run and Hide, LLC, Hard White, like especially Hard White and LLC, she was in her bag, like she was flowing crazy on those records. And I also mentioned on um, Twitter because I was talking about, you know, how much Nip Tuck was probably my favorite song on the album. It blows my mind that Nicki creates really dope R&B records. Like, as a rapper, Nicki really does put out good R&B records. From Right Through Me to Right By My Side to Nip Tuck to Grand Piano. Like, she really creates really dope R&B records on each album. And I think that's why a lot of people, myself included, consider her to be the standard for female rappers today because she showed other women in rap that it was okay to do some pop records. It was okay to do something new. You don't, you don't have to just be a rapper. You don't have to just be put in this box. And obviously she got that inspiration from Lauren Hill because Lauren Hill did it all from singing to rapping to producing. And we're going to get into Lauren Hill later as I talk about that Nas album. But Lauren Hill did it all. And I think that, you know, going back, Lauren Hill really... Lauren Hill and Queen Latifah I can credit as being the blueprints of that. Like, you don't have to just do the rap stuff. You can sing if you want to. You can do different genres of music. You can put out a fucking jazz album if you want to. Because I, I, I kind of think Queen Latifah put out a jazz album. You can do whatever you want. And so it's amazing to me that Nicki, who's a rapper rapper, like, she's can give you really... She can give you the bars, can really come out and give you these soft and really good R&B records as well. And I think on Queen her voice got better. Like you can hear the growth in her singing voice. Like Nip Tuck is so beautiful, not just like the singing, but also the melodies and the harmonies and the background vocals and things like that. Like Nip Tuck is a really beautiful record for Nicki Minaj vocally. So I think Queen also was another, um, it showcased the growth on that side as well. So Queen will always have a little special place in my heart. I think in some ways it could have been better. And, and a lot of that was affected by the pressure she had of, I've been gone for four years, the pink print is lauded as one of my best albums, how am I going to top it? So I feel like now Nicki Minaj is in a different space in her life, maybe she's at, at, at peace more, I don't know, I don't know her personally, so I can't say that for sure, but you know, she's got her child now, she's been wanting a child for years, she seems to be happier, she's less on social media, so I think that this next album that we're going to get, and hopefully we get it this year, because the, the year's practically almost over, we're about to hit the fourth quarter of the year. Hopefully we get it this year, and I think that it'll be a better album than Queen because she's she doesn't feel that pressure anymore, I think. Moving on from Nicki Minaj, Beyonce graced the cover of Harper's Bazaar September issue, and it's a shame that she doesn't do a whole lot of interviews, even though it's understandable. Because every time I read an interview from Beyonce or I watch one, I'm left feeling so inspired because... Beyonce is an example of a woman who, throughout her whole entire career, broke the rules to create new ones. And it's amazing watching her do it over and over again. It's amazing watching in real time her shift and impact the culture. Because, you know, I was alive when Michael Jackson was alive, but when he was putting out albums like Off the Wall and Thriller and Bad and, and making those really big pop culture moments, I wasn't around yet. So to watch someone, to have a legend like that of my own in my own life and watching it happen in real time is incredible. Because yeah, you can watch the music video for Thriller, but I'll never know what it was like to be in front of the TV as it was premiering and watching something like that unfold, watching someone create a almost visual album for the first time. Like you can tell that story, but you're never really, the person who's hearing the story is never really going to fully get the impact of that moment if they were not there watching it. Just like if, I ever have kids and I tell them, oh, I remember when Beyonce was the first black woman to do Coachella. I remember when she shifted the culture for release dates in music, like when it, when it went from Tuesdays to Fridays. I remember what a surprise album was like, you know, getting a surprise album was like for the first time and watching Lemonade and all of these moments that she's created. So watching her do that um, is one amazing thing, but hearing her 
say in an interview and tell her stories about how those things unfolded is even better hearing it out of her mouth and just seeing how her mind works and she did more of that in this interview she just talked about you know living four decades of life because she's going to be 40 next month which I can't believe she's going to be 40 next month but yeah in this interview she talks about her life experiences and you know both in her personal and her professional life and just gives us little glimpses of moments that have happened behind the scenes. For example, she talks about deciding to make the I Am Sasha Fierce era black and white after being told by her team that analytics showed that fans didn't like when she did black and white photography. And it went on to be her most commercially selling record. So her point of saying that was, look, who gives a fuck about analytics? Who, who cares about all that generalization of fans? Like, you can't really know what someone likes just by doing something like that. So you kind of have to take that leap of faith and do what you feel in your heart. And usually when people take leaps of faith like that, that's when you get those big, you know, moments in pop culture. That's when you get a classic. That's when you get, you know, something so life-changing because someone is doing something that's never been done before. And to do that, you have to take a leap of faith. So now reading that interview, I'm like, yeah, I am Sasha Fierce was black and white. From the album cover to the music videos, If I Were a Boy was all in black and white. Halo, that music video was all black and white. Single Ladies was all black and white. And I that didn't faze me. I didn't give a shit about there being color or not. The music was good. The visuals were good. And I think that was Beyonce's point. Like, you can't throw analytics at artists, which a lot of these record labels do, and they still do. You can't just throw analytics at, at artists and just expect them to stay in that bubble because eventually when you continue to follow that same formula that a label has structured for you, you're eventually going to um, hit a wall. And so I kind of think that that was such a badass mo moment for her to stick it to them and be like, oh yeah, they don't like black and white? We'll see. And it ended up being her most commercially um, high-selling album. And like I said before, she also talked about, you know, what she was looking forward to doing in her 40s. And she admitted that she wanted to create other businesses outside of music as well. And talking about how she has a passion for filmmaking and producing and directing. And you can see that in those visual albums. And I didn't know this, but she said that she was taught how to use Pro Tools. Well, not Pro Tools, that's music. But she was taught how to use um, Final Cut Pro to edit a lot of her music videos and a lot of her concert footage and her concert movies, which I thought was incredible. Like how many artists do you hear, um, doing that, you know? So I thought that was really cool because it kind of like, I don't know if it felt relatable because it took me back to being in college and learning how to use those tools myself for the first time. So imagining someone like Beyonce doing that too, was kind of cool. And I think that's why the, there's, um, I feel like that's what makes these visual albums more personal when you watch them because she puts so much effort into them. And that's why I love when she does interviews like the, like this because it like gives you a little peek into her world and, and, and her process and for someone who is interested in the same things, learning how one of the greatest artists of all times does things, it can be inspiring. And I saw a lot of people on Twitter saying the same thing. After reading that article, they were so inspired to just be the best versions of themselves. And I think that's why artists like Beyonce and Michael Jackson and even Jay-Z, um, a lot of people love to hear what they have to say on things because you look at the proof of the fruits of their lab labor and their hard work and how they got there. And it's like, I want to do that. I want to be that. So how did you get there? So it's so interesting to hear them talk about that stuff. And of course, what everybody was talking about from that interview was the fact that she admitted that there is new music coming. And I am so excited because I have been in my Beyonce bag lately. And funny enough, it really started from like a simple conversation with my dad and my mom as well. She came in later on the conversation, mostly to tell us that we're acting up again because once we get into that music bag, we just, we get loud and we get passionate and, and stuff like that. But we were pretty much talking about um, this Beyonce playlist that my dad created and he was just rattling off like songs that he likes and songs that were on the playlist. And of course my dad and my mom and I were clowning him because we're, because he likes this, her song green light, which I think happens to be her, one of her worst songs. And my mom agrees. And so after we were talking about his playlist and stuff like that, it inspired me to make my own playlist. Cause I realized, you know, how am I a Beyonce fan? I don't have my own like strictly Beyonce playlist. So I made one and I've just been listening to it over and over since I made it. And I was like, you know, I could really go for a new Beyonce album, like a new solo Beyonce album because we haven't gotten one since 2016. And though Lemonade has aged gracefully, it's hasn't gotten old to me. I could still play it top to bottom all the time and not, you know, I'm not over it. 
I would love new music from her. And pretty much in her interview, she said, you know, that this time that we're in, you know, time of isolation and just the injustices of the world has created this new renaissance for music and that she really, really wants to be a part of it. And so I really feel like this new album is going to be the start of this next chapter for Beyonce. Kind of like what I'm about to say about Nas with King's Disease and King's Disease 2. You know, I don't think Beyonce needs a reintroduction to this generation because she never left. She's been consistent. I think that's another amazing part about her career is that she's just been so consistent because she does her own thing. She doesn't pay attention to what's going on. She lets her own heart and her mind kind of control where the music goes to naturally. And I think that's why artists like her and The Weeknd who reinvent themselves every album, that's, I think that's how they do it. Because it's not forced, it's not based off of trends that anybody else is doing, it's based off of what they wanna do and where their life is taking them in that direction. And I think that Black is King was also the start of that shift for Beyonce. Like it's just, when you watch that visual album and you just listen to that music, Beyonce just sounds like she's in a different space and it sounds like she's getting even better. So I can't wait for what this album is going to sound like. I talked about the rumors about her dropping in fourth quarter, floating around, so that might be true. She tends to kind of just release her albums as surprises or she gives you one lead single and then you just get the album. So it is entirely possible that we could get an album before the year ends. I know she has, um, I think she's being, oh, um, she gets a tribute, I think next month at some award show. I don't remember what it was, but it's like a Tricon award. So she's she'll be receiving a tribute there. So that's probably gonna be the start of her rolling out an album or putting something out, putting new music out. She doesn't usually do these interviews and these magazine covers for nothing. There's usually something that she's promoting because she's one of those artists. And I and I really wish Drake and other artists would be more like this, that when it's time to drop music, they're around. When it's not time to drop music or promote something, you don't hear from them. Like this endless amount of teasing, it's, it's not cute. And so Beyonce, she's far from that. It's here's the music, goodbye. You got what you wanted. I'm out. I'm going back to my life. And so the fact that she's gracing this cover of this magazine tells me that, you know, all I needed to know before she confirmed that music was coming. And I kind of think earlier this year or last year, Michelle Williams, um, she posted a snippet of a conversation that her and Beyonce and Kelly Rowland were having. And in that snippet, Beyonce pretty much said, you know, I've been in the studio cooking. So I kind of had a feeling that that new music from her was on the horizon. And so I'm kind of glad she confirmed that because like I said, I've been in a Beyonce zone lately. So I can't wait to hear what this new album is sounding like. So that wraps up my thoughts about Beyonce's latest interview. And now I want to get into Nas's new album, King's Disease 2. So if the first King's Disease reintroduced Nas to a new generation of fans, then King's Disease 2 proves that he confidently found his modern identity in rap and has no plans of leaving and also sounds better than ever. King's Disease 2 is a much more fleshed out concept with both Nas and Hip Boy finding what works and perfectly executing it. Like I already said, Nas sounds more confident than experimental this time around. I really feel that Hip Boy has modernized boom bap and gave Nas current beats that sound exactly like something he should be rapping on. What makes Hipboy a successful producer is that he's a student in the game. He studies each artist he works with and their past sounds and crafts beats that truly suit them, while also allowing them to try something new. Now, King's Disease, you can tell that that was Hipboy trying to get Nas to sound more current, but King's Disease 2 was taking what worked for them on King's Disease and flushing out those concepts more and tailoring them to Nas more accurately than just throwing him on new stuff. Their chemistry was evident on the first one, but this one, King's Disease 2, proves that it wasn't a fluke and it has solidified Hipboy as a top collaborator for Nas. Like, you know, a lot of people say, I want Nas to work with this producer, I want Nas to work with that producer, and now, like in the next 10 years, people are gonna be like, oh, well, we need Nas on more Hipboy beats because they created something special on the first two King's Disease albums. So I really feel like King's Disease 2 kind of drove that point home that Hipboy and Nas are a perfect match. I think this album has everything for every Nas fan. There are songs that give me Life is Good vibes. There are songs that sound like they could be a part of a sequel to It Was Written and so on. And at this point in Nas's career, he does have different fans for different sounds. And Hip Boy crafted an album that has songs that speak to every Nas fan without it sounding like a cluttered compilation album. 
I think this album sets a precedent, or I should say this rap album sets a precedent of what all rap albums should be sounding like in 2021 and will definitely end up being one of the best rap albums of the year, maybe even one of the best albums of the year, period. It also further proves that traditional lyrical rap is back and it's been revamped and Hit Boy is the head of that. My top tracks from King's Disease 2 are Death Row East, Rare, Store Run, Moments, and Nobody. So I'm going to start off with Death Row East. This is the highlight off of King's Disease. The way Hip Boy was able to recapture Tupac's essence on the production by sprinkling in that G-Funk edge to it just proves how skilled of a producer he really is. This song sounds like it could have been on Tupac's 7 Day Theory album. Nas skates on this beat and does what he does best, which is draw the listener in with an engaging story. My favorite lines from Death Row East are, quote, high on life, drunk off dark liquor, shit getting eerie, like I threw on Thriller. And let me tell you something, on this album, Nas has really gotten good at creating hooks. The hook off of Death Row East is just so addicting, and a lot of the hooks on the songs on this album are so good as well. So props to Nas on that. The next song I want to talk about is Rare. Rare lives up to its name. It's Nas attempting more modern flows and styles, and it works. Largely, it works because Nas and Hip Boy made it their own. It's a modernized version of Boom Bap with some trap influences, with Nas spinning more like rappers you hear today. His flow is nuts on the first part of the song. It's effortless. That's, the beat switches are dope too. You can tell he really found his pocket in each beat and took off. Like the confidence that you can hear bleeding through rare is just undeniable. My favorite lines are, quote, studying big, studying Nietzsche. You got to call in a chopper to reach me. Homie, I don't need a jeweler to freeze me. Ice in my veins. I make it look easy. And because right there in that moment, that flow sounds very much like what you hear a lot of trap rappers sound like on their beats, but Nas took it. And because he's lyrical, it sounds that much flyer on it. The next quote I liked from Rare is, quote, Ain't nothing changed. I'm flipping the page. I'm Prince on the stage. Slave on his face. You know what they say. Katie the wave. The next song I wanted to talk about in another true highlight off of King's Disease 2 is Store Run. What I love the most about this track is the sample Hip Boy chopped up. Nas sounds his best when he spits over soulful samples and beats, and he proved that again on Store Run. This song just bleeds soul and allows Nas to smoothly spit and tell vivid stories beautifully. My dad said he could hear Jay over this beat, and I agree. This song sounds like Blueprint era Jay, and I wish they had added him onto this song. KD2 is very cinematic, and Store Run is one of those cinematic moments. I picture Scarface when I hear it. My favorite lines are, quote, People battered down, Asian hate getting passed around, Tiger happy both his parents' lives matter now. Because I just think that was such a, with everything going on in, in the world, that was such a powerful line, you know, because, you know, Tiger Woods' parents, his dad is black and his mother is Asian, and I feel like 2020 and 2021 just proved that we are no longer accepting racism or ignorance or, you know, bigotry. We're not accepting that anymore. We're really sticking up for ourselves and saying, hey, we will not be treated like this anymore. And if you continue to treat us this way, you will face dire consequences. So I feel like this line in, um, embodies a lot of the messages that we've been starting to spread about injustices between 2020 and 2021. I really like that line. The next song I wanted to talk about is Moments, which is probably my favorite song on the album. It's one of Nas's most vulnerable moments on King's Disease 2, and honestly, one of the most beautiful moments as well. Music that sticks with me the most is music that speaks and touches my soul, and Moments did this for me. It's this feeling that I can't really describe, but it's magic. Nas tells you the story of a man who's lived a lot of life and is reminiscing on the most important moments of his life. And it's beautiful to hear, especially in a time where a lot of people are dying. So it's, it's really beautiful to hear someone who's lived a lot of life be able to still tell that story as they're still living, you know? It's truly a life is good moment and I love it. My favorite lines from this song, and there are a lot, so let me get through them. The first one is, quote, brothers you knew from san the sandbox will do the dirtiest because that's so true. Some of the people that, some of the friends you've had for the longest time will sometimes be the one to do you the worst. They'll do you the dirtiest. And I just like that line. I couldn't have said it better. The next quote is, quote, like taking your first swim, like still being a virgin, taking training wheels off the rims, moving in your first crib or having your first kid, moments you can't relive. 
Because on a song like Moments when you're talking about the most important parts of your life, I feel like this hook really ties the message of the song together. He's naming moments that the most important moments of anybody's life, you know, losing your virginity for the first time, you know, getting your first house by yourself and having your first child. Those are moments that you don't forget. And those are some people's most happiest moments in life. The last quote I wanted to talk about is, I'm dolo, no co-defendants. I've been with the social distance just because I like, I thought that line was clever. I thought it was witty. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you've always been independent on your own. You've always been able to kind of rock without having a whole lot of people around. And we've been social distancing because of COVID. So that kind of ties in a clever line into what's been going on lately. So, and I can agree. I've been with the social distance too. I don't want you super close to me. If I'm standing in line, you don't need to be breathing down my back. Give me 50 feet. I really relate to that line. The last song on my list is Nobody, which features Miss Lauren Hill. This song is a beautiful moment in which Nas and Miss Lauren Hill reunite to give another song filled with gems and how great it was to hear Lauren Hill rap again. Hip Boy and Corbett really took it back to the 90s and crafted a beat that was truly meant for no one else but Nas and Lauren. It really sounds like a continuation of what they started back then. The best part of this song is Lauren Hill's verse. It's poetic and she was just speaking facts. It's a verse that sticks with you because it's conversational and it's real. I also love the jazz influence in the production and how they brought in some record scratches towards the end of Lauren's verse because it's her through and through. This song is another reminder that the world needs another album from Miss Lauren Hill. My favorite lines are, quote, now the world will get to see its own reflection and the anointed can pursue their own direction. And if you're wrong and you're too proud to hear correction, walk into the hole you dug yourself. Fuck a projection. Also, quote, I turned the other cheek. I took blow after blow. There's so much crisis in the world because you reap what you sow. When you keep what you know is meant for someone else, the ditch you dig for them, you might just end in yourself. And lastly, quote, if I'm a messenger, you block me, then you block the message. So aggressive. The world you made is what you're left with. And those lines really stuck out to me because she really was able to describe what I think a lot of us have felt within the past couple of years, where you're in isolation, you're being forced to not only self-reflect, but look at the world around you. And the world has been a mess. We have been in crisis for a long time. And I think that 2020 was the height of when the world is such a mess and there's nothing being done about it, eventually it's going to crash and burn. And I think that we did crash and burn in 2020. And so now, you know, we took the rest of that year to self-reflect and looked at what's going on in the world and realized just how screwed up it was and, and how we need to fix it and try to figure out how we're going to fix it. So I feel like her whole verse on nobody really, she said it better than I could have. I think she put a lot of what we were thinking into this verse and it was just really real. And that's why it was impactful. King's Disease 2 is a true shining moment for Nas and a beautifully written album filled with great stories and poetic words. It outshines the original because Nas has found his identity in this decade and this confidence allowed him to dive deeper than he did on the first King's Disease. If this is how Nas is coming the rest of the decade, then I'm locked in. Moving on from Nas, I wanted to talk about Victoria Monet's new song, Coastin'. This track is a breezy, calm, 70s-inspired summer record. It's fun, and Victoria sounds great as usual, and provides us with more fun and witty lines. The song samples Rising to the Top, which gives it a 70s or 80s vibe, and though the sample is noticeable, she makes the song her own. My favorite lines from Quoston are, quote, Tell me, baby, baby, what's your sign? Because you're astronomically fine, just because I thought the line was really cute. And also, quote, just let my hips take you on a trip. I swear they don't make them like this. I also wanted to talk about The Weeknd's new song, Take My Breath. Of course, The Weeknd is back with another fun, up-tempo track that makes you want to dance. He sounds amazing as usual, but I've never heard him sound off, ever. It amazes me how he continues to push himself artistically and always manages to make the music sound so fresh. Take My Breath is as addicting as Blinding Lights is and will probably be another hit for him. This song has some 90s influence, but still some influences of the 80s due to the synths. I think we'll get another album full of synths, to be honest. And though the synths are a heavy part of the production, I'd say that the bass carries it as well. This song sounds like it could have come out decades ago, but also works today, and that's the beauty of it. My favorite lines from Take My Breath are, quote, I know temptation is the devil in disguise. 
You risk it all to feel alive. Oh yeah, you're offering yourself to me like sacrifice. And also, quote, it's like a dream what she feels with me. She loves to be on the edge. Her fantasy is okay with me. And what I really love about The weekend and his writing is that he will give you this really up-tempo, high-energy beat and sing the darkest lines, you know, with that beat. And you're listening and you're dancing and sometimes you don't pick up on what he's really talking about until you're really sitting and listening and you're like, this is some dark shit. And you, and you can hear that all over after hours. Now, take my breath is a little tame, but essentially what he's telling his lover to do is that when they're having sex, she can choke him and take his breath away because it heightens their pleasure. That's what I got from take my breath. So it's things like that. You don't pick up on that right away until you listen back to it a couple of times and you're like, oh shit, he, this is a little dark. So before we get to the end of the episode, I want to talk about the song of the week. And the song of the week is Moments by Nas because it is my favorite song off of King's Disease 2. It's a beautiful moment and I feel like I just had to make it the song of the week this week. And I feel like maybe part of the magic that I talked about earlier with the song is that, you know, in the darkest times that we have been living in for the past couple of years moments was kind of like a moment to be like you know what living a full life is beautiful you can you have all of these these future moments to look forward to in life and once you get to those moments make sure you really revel in them so I just had to make it the song of the week because it I just love the song so much and that's really all I can really say about it of the episode thank you guys so much for listening to me rant and ramble for over an hour if you enjoyed this episode then please give listen to me speak a five-star rating on apple podcasts or wherever you rate podcasts and if you enjoy listen to me speak as a whole then please consider donating to my listeners donations you can find it right on my anchor page or on my website www.listentomespeak.com And if you want to keep up with me on social media, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, even YouTube. Again, the links to my social medias can be found on my website, www.listentomespeak.com. And like I say every week, be kind to yourselves and thank you for listening to me speak.